0: Well, you're in the car park out there just a little while later, Uh, someone who you don't recognise comes screeching up in a car, sticks their head out the window, and says to you, I would like directions. Uh, You think, okay, fair enough. What's the first question you're going to ask them? Where do you want to go? It could be more simple than that, could it? It could be more profound than that. Uh, If you want to know what to do in the now, you've got to know where you're headed for. That's quite simple and straightforward, isn't it? To try and figure out how to live now, forget directions, how to live now without knowing what your final destination is, is bonkers. You will conduct your life now, you will conduct yourself now, in terms of what journey you think you are on. And I know many people think they're on a road to nowhere, but everybody either has a conscious journey that they're on, or else just defaults to somebody else's idea as to what journey they should be on. Now, that's what the intellectuals call ethics. Ethics is simply how we live and why we live it. How we behave, how we act, how we think, how we speak, how we make our choices, how we set the direction, and it it, it all comes down to why. What journey do we think we are on? We will conduct ourselves in terms of who we think we are, what we think life is about, and where we think life is headed. Now, that's not rocket science. But you need to bite into that, because if you don't, you won't interpret life and make choices, good choices, in accordance with that. Now, everybody is like that. Everybody will make choices on the basis of where they think life is found, where they think they're going. But Christians, people who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour, Christians will have a very specific set of answers to those questions, who am I, what is life about, where am I headed, that makes them live differently to everybody else. Okay, can I say that again? Christians are distinct, are separate, have got a new way of life, because they have specific answers to, who am I, what is life all about, where am I headed? And that's enormously powerful in this little bit of the Bible that we're looking at. Peter was born a Jew in Israel. And he, from that height, from Poppy's height, would have been taught the old stories of how God first called the nation of Israel to himself, way back in the uh, uh, early stages of the Bible, not the book of Genesis, but the book of Exodus. Do you remember the story down in Egypt lands? ...where God's people are enslaved under a wicked and God-hating fellow called Pharaoh... ...and God's children, God's people there, they... ...well, they're living a half-life. They're crushed, they're oppressed, they have very little rights... ...they're under a godless regime... ...and God, because of his mercy and his grace, says, I am going to deliver you... ...I am going to redeem you, I'm going to rescue you out of that situation... Not to go off and do your own thing, but I'm going to rescue from that to me. Now that is always God's trajectory when he wants to be involved in somebody's life. So you think of any of your friends, you think of yourself, you think of your own story. Trajectory is always God will rescue you from slavery to sin and bring you, not to go and figure out how to live like yourself, but will bring you to himself to make you for his own good purposes. And Peter had that imagery all at work in his mind in this letter, all the way through. So what was true of Old Testament Israel is true now for anybody who says, I belong to Jesus. So in the very first verses of this chapter, if you look down at verse 1 and 2, who do we find that Christians are? They are God's elect chosen and strangers in the world. They're on, if you like, a pilgrimage, on a journey through life because they are set and called by God, not because there's anything special and good about them, but because God is amazingly, abundantly gracious to call the most unlikely people and say, you, you're going to be mine. I'm going to do amazing things in your life and give you a future beyond the grave." So, all of this is being taken up and applied to Christians, but as you listen to that, I don't want you to think it's going to be plain sailing, because if there's one thing that the of Book of Peter teaches us, is that this will mean that you are in a, a constant state of, of warfare almost, hostility, not that you're out to try and kill anybody, but you're in a world that is hostile to the person of Jesus, so it won't be easy to live in a world that is an effectively world, uh, ruled by Pharaoh. It just won't be easy. You will, to a degree, feel out of place if you are trying to stand for Jesus in this world. And some of you made that commitment years ago, didn't you? Say, so, said, I want to stand for Jesus, I want to receive his forgiveness, I want to walk in his hope. But others of you are still trying to make it in your mind. Do I want to follow Jesus? And this is a great, great little bit of the Bible to help us think that through, because it will tell you the cost. Because you're going to be standing in a world... Well, it puts pressure on you to do certain things that God says, I want to rescue you out of. I want to deliver you from. So I was trying to think of the common things, uh, lifestyle issues that get put I don't watch the soap operas very much. I really don't. They drain your brains, ladies. They really do suck your will to live out. Uh, But some of the things that are just put across in the soap operas as normal living, drunkenness, idolatry, fornication, greed, strife, violence. And it's just put across as normal to say this is just what it looks like to be human. And so it's not always a, a firm pressure, you will join in with all those things, but it's more of a case of that if you, if you try to speak out and say, actually those aren't normal, that's not what we were made for, that's not what humanity look, is supposed to look like. If you do, you'll get trouble. Don't get in the way of people who say those things are normal. Whatever you do, don't make a fuss, because if you do, it'll be difficult for you. And this creates huge challenges for those of us who are Christian parents, for those of us who want to bring up our youngsters uh, thinking and recognising that Jesus is King of Kings and he's the one who owns the universe and it's not MTV. It means that sooner or later we have to turn off our tellies at some point or another, aren't we? So if you're a Christian parent, uh, let me ask you this question just straight out. Because you want your youngsters to recognise and esteem Jesus more than the idiot preachers who sing and rap on our tellies, what in this last week have you turned off? What have you tried to protect them from? What dull and simple messages have you said, actually, that's not right, I'm going to shut the telly off. Or well, that magazine, close that. I bumped, <laughs> I bumped into a fella from Bridge Chapel in the, in the, up at the retail park yesterday, and he got his little kids in tow, We'd just gone out and bought a few sweets for the, uh, I'd just gone out with a few of the kids, bought a few sweets for them. Uh, Mummy wanted a bit more time to tidy the house. So I thought, right, raining, can't take them to the park, I'll take them to the retail park. Which shop did they want to go into? You're right, you're faster than the kids. Everybody likes Smith. Uh, who's posh and calls it Smides? That would be me and Janice. Okay. So we popped into Smides. Smith, all right, whatever. Okay, We popped in there, and I bumped into this fellow, Johnny Lowe's is his name, and he's got two of his kids like this, and I've got three of my kids like this, and he's walking along going, oh dear, Steve, you alright? I'm like, no. We're here again, yes, walking our kids through their covetous idolatry. Again, why do we keep bringing them here and teaching them that shiny, Smiley, bright things that talk with an annoying voice will really make them happy. I don't know. Shall we get out? Yes. Come on, kid. <laughs> Just so subtle, isn't it? Because well, Smiths are very good at teaching us that if you have all those really cool things that in you shop, you'll feel happy, fulfilled, and you'll be a proper person. And I'm walking up and down these aisles, going, no power here. Uh, the only power it's got is to enslave and ensnare the to teach us to live the futile and empty things. Now listen, I'm not a hater of toys. I think toys are great. But if you put your hope in them and build your life on them, you're only going to get hurt. So here we've been, we're finding that God calls people to a new life, a real life, a full life. And I'm going to talk a little bit about conduct. Although it doesn't come through in this, uh, this English translation that slightly changed the words a little bit, the original, three times the word conduct, how you live, comes up. And some of you, you'll be like, well, I'm not, sure, uh, I'm not sure whether I can live this way. Well, in that case, what you need to do is call on Jesus to say, give me new life so I can. Be at working working me in such a way So that I can. Some of you, if you listen to this, you still haven't decided whether or not you want to live for Jesus or not. The answer isn't to sit there, beat yourself up and say, I really must try harder than this. The answer is to come and say, Lord Jesus, would you give me a new life? Would you give me a heart to love what you love? Would you call me in and make me part of your family of people? If you are a believer, you will face huge temptations just to cave in on so many different areas of your life, maybe to go dark, maybe when you're tempted in sin, and you want to be like everybody else, to push in, and here, Peter is simply going to give us three reasons why it is, and how it is, our conduct, if we are believers here today, will be different. Joe, did we manage to pull up that slide at all? Can you click on that? Okay. Alex, I noticed that you were getting a bit tired. Do you want me to turn up the mic? We all right there, mate? Okay, Alex has got points on this section of the Bible that he recorded at New Word Alive. He said, first thing he said to me was, not Steve, are you going to open God's word to us today? He said, Steve, are you going to tell everybody my points from this bit of the Bible? I said, Alex, bless you. Number one, you need to stay awake. Number two, I'm the one paid to preach around here. Okay, well, right, let's go look at these three things, Okay. These are three things that will help us living differently as God intends, because we're His called and chosen people, who He's bringing to Himself. Number one, look forward to your hope. Verse 13. You see it there. Somebody read verse 13 for us, please. Somebody read verse 13, nice and loud. <inaudible> Brilliant. What's h- hidden under that? Where it says. Uh, in verse 13, prepare your mind, it literally says, gird up the loins of your mind, which is not a very pretty picture at all. To gird up your loins, back in the day, when the um, warriors would go out to battle, they'd have sort of like a long tunic or something on, and which is fine when you're on your way to your battle, but when you're in your battle, you need to sort of, you know, loosen up a little bit, okay? Uh, it, it, when this used to be the pub and uh, the fella decided to have a straightener, they'd walk outside, take the coat off, at least. So it's less inhibited, ready, set for action, okay? Uh, you gird up your loins back there, you take your chewing, it, tuck it in your belt, so you're ready, like this. So it's almost like the Lord Jesus is saying, and uh, I nearly started singing it, because there's a song about it in High School Musical, called, Get Your Head in the Game. Do you remember that? Lauren, do you remember that one? Was it High School Musical 2? Get your, for the first one. Get... Karen! Karen, you're nodding too enthusiastically. You know this too well. Get your head in the game. Roll up your sleeves. Get ready for action. Pay attention. Some of you have heard that I had a a collision with an automobile whilst riding my bike the other day. And it's a possibility it was my fault when I slammed into a car at 20 miles an hour. Uh, there's a possibility that my head wasn't in the game and I just didn't see the guy indicating so when he turned like that and I went Poof, into the side of him, um, it was my fault it could have been that his head wasn't in the game and he hadn't indicated and for some jolly reason he started to go when I'm riding up the side of him at 20 miles an hour uh, any which, either which way it is I've got a very sore butt but um, you get the idea you don't get your head in the game you have crash, what does it say next? Therefore, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, or more literally, be sober-minded, i.e. don't be drunk. Be sober-minded means make clear thinking decisions. Have you noticed that very few good decisions are made when people are drunk? Nobody has ever got drunk and gone afterwards, oh look, I cured cancer. It just doesn't work like that. Quite often what we'll do is we'll have a drink in order to stop ourselves thinking properly. We go, life's really awful when I'm sober, I need a drink. And given that you make worse decisions when you do drink, do you think it's going to go well for you? It isn't, is it? No. So here, this isn't so much about um, having or not having alcohol, this is about keeping a clear head and a clear mind. So, what is he saying? Every morning, when we get up, you fill your head with stuff. So you go to the wardrobe, you think about what you ate the previous day, and you think, can I actually fit into that? Oh no, I can't, and that starts worrying me for the rest of the day. Some of you, when you get up in the morning, you think of that difficult conversation you've got to have, and it fills your head. Sometimes you get up in the morning and you go, I've got those bills to pay, I don't know how I'm going to cope, I need some money in advance, what am I going to do? And it fills your head. You think about how the kids are getting on and where they're going and you're like, oh, full of worries about them and it fills your head. So you sit there and you think, hold on, I'm all alone in this house, this property of mine, I feel a bit lonely and it it fills your head. Your choices and your conduct are shaped by what you gird up your loins, uh, of your mind with, how you get your head in the game, what you fill your head with. So what are we to fill our head with? Verse 13. Therefore, prepare your mind for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's what I'm to fill my head with. And I'm to think clearly about it every single day. I know I will go on a bit, but you really ought to read your Bible first in the morning. If you do not fill your head with God's truth, you will fill it with something else. Because not if you will... And Peter says, if you're going to live the life God called you to, if you're going to enjoy his grace, you need to fill your head with a future hope. Look forward, he says. Fix, uh, set your hope fully. Get up in the morning, stand your feet fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's the thing you set your hope on in the morning. That is the thing. Now, we all have a source of hope. We were talking about this last week. What's yours? And quite often, your source of hope is revealed when things don't go the way you plan. So if you have a boyfriend and they dump you and all hope is gone, what's that just told you about what the source of your hope was? What was the source of your hope? Your boyfriend. If your investments crash and tank and all hope is gone, what was the source of your hope? And I've got a, a book in my study about a whole stack of big uh, wigs and Wall Street who pretty, pretty much just chucked themselves out of buildings when there was the big economic downturn about five years ago. Because all their hope is in their investments. What happens if you lose your job and you lose your hope? It tells you where your hope is. It's in your job. When these things die, your hopes die. That's why you've got to set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed, uh, um, on the grace given you when Jesus Christ is revealed, because he's the ever-living one. Whereas hope in anything other than Jesus ultimately can be taken from you or can can perish... Jesus is the living one. He's the resurrected Lord. He cannot die. If you want a hope that won't die, put it on Jesus. Put it in him. Praise the Lord. Focus on him. He is your future. Yet you've not got him yet, but he has that. So whatever else is going on in your day, you've got your feet firmly planted in him. Every morning when you get up, don't fill your head with the things and the desires that you want for that day. As good as they may be, Don't let those things be your hope, you and your little kingdom. Fill your head with Him. And that's the way to live as journeyers on the trajectory that God has put us on. Get up in the morning and say, I know God has loved me and He's called me to Himself. I know that that He's at work in my life, even through trials, to visit His salvation into me. I know all of this has come, not because I'm anything special, but because He's a great and merciful Savior. He's my Heavenly Father. What shall I fear? My hope in him cannot die because he's untouchable. Therefore I'm safe and secure. And as you do that, you'll find that your conduct starts to change and we'll find out through the rest of the letter what it will change into. You'll find that as trials come your way, your perspective will be so much clearer. Have you noticed those who who take time to foster a deep relationship and confidence of trust and hope in Jesus are so much more solid when the storm comes, aren't they? Because their hope can't be touched by the storm. So that's your first one, that was verse 13. Your first one was there, look forward to your hope. Second, look up to your Father. Somebody read for us please, verses 14 through to 17. Verses 14 through to 17. As I will children, until you have come forward to the entire time of your life in us, but just as he calls for it, so he it for it, but he calls for it, but he Brilliant, thanks, Andy. Now this is a great day to illustrate this. Look up to your father and see what he is like, because what he is like, that is where what you will be becoming. Okay, I've said this to some of you fellas when you have been considering um, marrying um, a lovely lady. I said, just check, uh, make sure you love your soon-to-be mother-in-law, because that is what your wife will one day be like, okay? This is, I think you're wonderful. (laughs) Now this is a great thing to illustrate this, is that kids are supposed to look like their dad, so if you look around this room now, you will find somebody who is as tall, dark and handsome as me, and uh, it's all his fault, Okay? Uh, so, yeah, you're very welcome, Dad. Okay, kids are supposed to look like their fathers. Now, I'll notice this here. We've got this family motif going on. Do you notice that in verse 14? As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you, i.e., your your Dad, um, God the Father, called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Be like him. Verse 17. Uh, Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially. This is a family thing. The reason Christians live differently to other people is they have an intimate relationship with the father that we all ultimately need. We get adopted into his family and start to take on the family likeness. Now please, can we make sure we're really clear on something? Because I don't want you to make God into an ogre and a horrible parent. The sad thing is, is that some parents just communicate subtly to their kids. If you obey me, then I will love you. That's horrible. Because the opposite, sometimes we'll assume the opposite is true. If you stop obeying, then I won't love you. Now if you have either been on the receiving end of that kind of parenting, or you are trying to do that kind of parenting, can I tell you that borderlines on abuse. It's wicked, and it's horrible. And it's certainly not the way that God is as a father. He doesn't need our obedience. He's not needy. No, the way we relate to him is grace. What I've just described to you is religion. Religion is, you obey, you're in. You don't obey, you're out. That's not what we're about here. That's not what the message of the Bible is. The message of the Bible is a God of grace coming when we were at our most helpless and saying, and before we'd offered God anything, saying, come into my family through my son Jesus Christ. We are brought in by Jesus, kept by Jesus. We are in on the grounds of Jesus' performance, not our own. He loves us so that we grow and change and start loving him. We get to be like him. So what does this look like? We'll look down at verse 14 again. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance... But just as he who calls you is holy, so be holy in in all you do, for it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. That word conformed there means that there's always somebody somewhere trying to squeeze you into a mould. Just be aware well you ought to know that in life anyway, there's always somebody who's trying to squeeze you into some mould or another. So to be conformed to something is to have sort of like a funny shaped bottle. And what you do is you get a little of water and you tip it into the funny shaped bottle and the water conforms to the shape of the bottle. What is the shape that we are to conform to? Well, the pressure for the uh, Israelites under Egypt and under Pharaoh was to be conformed to the pattern of what it looked like to live in Egypt. And in the same way, we are being pushed into the world's mould for us rather than being conformed and shaped into who God is. And who is God? What is he? Well, he is Holy. That is the one word that gets used to describe, the one attribute that gets used to describe the living God more than any other in the Bible. Yea, he is powerful, yea, he is sovereign, yes, he is loving, He's all of those things, but more than anything, he is holy. And what does holy mean? Holy means separate, that's the key theme. Do not know what holy means? It means separate. So what it does is, way back in Egypt land, he grabs hold of this nation, he rescues, rescues them out, and he says, I am altogether separate. I loathe injustice. I'm aboundingly generous. Uh, I'm always centered on the needs of others. There is no spite in me. I'm not greedy. I go on forever in my faithfulness. I'm all of these things. I'm separate to, to broken and spoiled humanity. And I want you now, I have saved you, to be on the trajectory to be more like me. He is totally other. Holiness is where we get our English word wholeness from. Now, we find way back in the, in, in the earliest sections of the Bible, back in that bit where that quote is taken from, from the book of Leviticus, I was reading it all this week, actually, where it says, Be holy, for I am holy. He says, Be totally distinct and different because you're connected to me. So if he's a, a God who hates injustice, who hates malice, in whom there is no spite, there is no greed, there is no lust, ladies, was there anybody here who wouldn't want to marry a fellow like that? That's exactly the kind of person you want to be around. Nobody ever was around God and got disappointed. Nobody. Anybody who's come near to him has has just said, I want more. I want more of who he is and what he is like. And if you're a Christian here this morning, that is your dad. That is your heavenly father. So be like him. And I know it's hard because we're entangled in a messy world and we've got to make choices. But what happens when you become a Christian is you start to think differently. I used to think that experience... I would just dive in and go for any experience that would make me happy, but they don't. I used to think that the Christian life is dull and boring and static and stuffy, but I realised that all that God says to me through his word is my good. Every time I choose sin, I choose to suffer sooner or later. When God says don't, he's really saying, don't hurt yourself, be like me, be who I have made you to be. Do you believe here if you're a Christian? Please tell me you do. If you believe here that every command leads to your joy. God is saying, this is how I've made you to be. Joyfully and willingly submit to all that I say to you. Don't think you know best, you don't. I do. Build your life, choose to conduct your life in that manner. And for us to do that, you need to pay attention to verse 17. Look at it there. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here, In reverence fear. Oh dear, I hope you've got to to be be, be very aware here of an illusion. And the illusion that so many people want to live under is this. I can can step over the boundaries of God's laws with no side effect. That's a massive illusion. Total denial of consequences. So we say to ourselves, you know, I know it doesn't feel right. My conscience is against it. From what I know, what's right and wrong, it's not right. But you know what? There's a different set of rules for me. I'm the exception to the rule. I can make this one work. And here we're being told, God judges impartially. No, you can't. No, you can't. That, that isn't the world that you live in. The world that you live in is one where the Lord judges impartially. Now, this judgment that's being spoken on in verse 17 isn't heaven and hell judgment. This is including the fact that, well, just in life, the Lord has wound up the universe in such a way that there is a consequence to your choice. So, if you're a Christian or you're somebody who's not a Christian, and you both make the same poor choice, you're both going to get the same scars and consequences, aren't you? God judges impartially. He set the world up so that when you make poor choices, ah, you think again. If you're somebody who at the moment is going through that, ah, at the moment, because of the fact you've made poor choices, your answer is to rush back to God and say, Lord, have mercy on my soul. Thank you for Jesus that he pays for my sin. Please, Lord, would you help me to walk in such a way as to honour you and to trust you of course, some of us are recovering from a life without the Lord. Some of us are recovering from poor choices that we've made in the past. Sometimes we've pushed the boundaries, we've landed on our backside, and it's got painful. We've invested in the wrong places and built our hope on things that, well, quite frankly, don't deliver. And the Lord just says to us in this bit, Listen, if you're going to go on this journey with me, if you're one of my cool children, if you are on the way to this great hope of meeting Jesus, invest in me. I'm your father. Go my way and be like me. So that's the second one. The first is look forward to your hope. The second is look up to your father and be like him in the way you conduct yourself. Third and finally, look back to your redemption. And this is the one, if you've tuned out, this is the one I really wanted to get. Because this bit tells us what is really important. Somebody read for us verses 18 to 21. Somebody read 18 to 21. Thank you. Right, so what does this one say? Look back to your redemption. Now, this immediately tells us what is most important. In fact, what we've got here is the epicenter of human history. Now, many of us look back to our past, don't we? And we look to something in our past that quite often is the thing that we use as a a thing that defines us and says that 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 thing has created, made me, or shaped me. Perhaps we say, my genes are a little bit wonky, or I went through a particular... I'm not talking about the genes you wear here, you know, your DNA gene things. I don't know, somebody who knows about that can tell me a better way to say it. Your genes, or your sufferings, perhaps, you went through a particularly difficult situation, which was genuinely horrendous, but you're still being shaped by it. You say, hold on, I'm a product of the past and what was done to me. Sometimes we live in the past, and if you live in the past, then you're bound over to despair, self-pity, anger and misery. Sometimes we hide from our pasts by trying to live in the present. So we pursue successes or pleasures or security or attention or being cared for in the here and now to cover over something that we've either done or has been done to us in the past. Verses 18 and 19 here blow all of that up. They, totally unpa- they don't just undermine it, they just blow it all to smithereens. Because just like the children of Israel had a past when they were enslaved in Egypt lands, under the oppression of Pharaoh, enslaved, disempowered, dehumanized, the Lord Jesus, when he came and using Moses to do it, delivered those people out of Egypt lands, he blew up those past factors and made them a new people. The word used in this verse to do it is the word redeemed. Everybody say redeemed, cool, should we say it again because it's a cool word, redeemed, okay, he redeemed, if you've got an older version, it says ransomed, when you ransom something, on the payment of the price there is liberation, that's what redeemed means, on payment of the price there is liberation, look down at verse 18, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect okay he's telling us here that at the centre of the Christian message is Jesus redeeming blowing apart our past failures our hurts, and what has been done to us and giving us a new future and some of you haven't quite connected with this because you say Steve I'm not enslaved I'm not shaped by those things. I haven't got Pharaoh bearing down on me and telling me to go make more bricks without straw. No, the Bible tells us that we're all enslaved to sin. We're enslaved by that. We are not free. You say, "Oh, don't say I am free, I get to vote. No, 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 no. The reason we don't see ourselves as enslaved in the West is because we volunteer and voluntarily submit ourselves to slavery. Yeah, there are some places in the world where you actually get enslaved proper, locked up, shackled in, done. But what we do is we pick what we want to enslave ourselves to. Let me give you some examples. We pick our pharaohs. Food. We either eat too much or we eat too little. And we can't stop ourselves from doing either. And we've picked our slavery. I was talking to you last week about one of my daughter's slaveries. Utterly enslaved to sweets. She'll do whatever is necessary to get sweets. Daddy. I love you. Kind of a sweet. <laughs> she'll take them off her sisters. She'll stab. She'll kill. She'll... <laughs> if you touch her sweets, she'll kill you. Enslaved. Alcohol. It's not so much alcohol we get enslaved to. It's more the fact of escapism, isn't it? Anybody here utterly addicted to escapism? Of course, can I tell you There's a particular sin for the fellas. Get off your Playstations, you pathetic adult males. You boys who shave wake up and smell the coffee, get off your game, and start taking responsibility. you can't, can you? Because you're enslaved. To escapism. To toys. To minor distractions. Gambling. That's something that people get enslaved to, don't they? What you do is you go there, you pay your money for the hope of more, for the hope of better, and then, when they take that bit of money, you say, well, I was so close. No, you weren't. So, there's a reason why those casinos are bigger than your house. They win. You don't. Pornography. Fellas, we need to talk about that, don't we? But now's not the place, and now's not the time. But there are countless men who are enslaved by pornography. Outside of the Christian church, 75% of men use pornography regularly. But fellas, we're going to talk about this in another arena. Debt. We enslave ourselves to the pursuit of just having more and more toys to the point where we will become enslaved to the credit card companies. Control, and this is possibly the biggest one, isn't it? We live under this illusion that by careful planning and strategic thought, what we can do is we can control, um, we can do pain avoidance, misery and difficulty avoidance by just controlling our circumstances. Maybe we think we can do it by finances. Maybe we think we can do it by angling in terms of relationships with people around us. And what happens is, is, as we give ourselves and enslave ourselves to that master that I can control my destiny and the destiny of the ones that I love, Uh, It's a plausible lie, isn't it? It's plausible because there's a measure of believability that I can, to a degree, control things in my life, and then suddenly, boom, out of nowhere comes cancer. And you get told that you can't. But you're still enslaved to this idea that I will control my circumstances, my finances, I will will shape and influence my my family and my loved ones in such a way as to keep them from from, uh, as much danger as possible. And the idea that we can control, we just get hooked on... And it ends up controlling us, and it ends up dehumanizing our loved ones and controlling them. But we could go on again and again and again. We are free to pick our pharaohs, and we do, and we're enslaved to them. We are not free, but Jesus Christ came to liberate us from those things, from the consequences of our sin... ...from the fact that we are rightly facing God's wrath... ...for enslaving and and, and joining ourselves to things so much lesser than Him... ...and by doing that we dishonour Him... ...and Jesus Christ comes in and says, I will pay the price... ...I will pay the price so that you can be liberated... ...I will set you free and give you a new future... ...so that whatever you have given yourself to in the past... ...or whatever others have given you into in the past... ...is not your master anymore... I will ransom, redeem, and liberate you. And why are we talking about that today? Peter's talking about this here because it says, when you sense that, suddenly you want to live for him. The way you live now matters to you. And that's why he uses these words here. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ we will live differently because we know how precious our redemption is oh it came free to us but it cost more than anything else the most precious commodity the world has ever seen forget platinum forget gold it's the blood of the Lord Jesus and he paid on the nail and knowing how precious his blood was to redeem a people for himself we say I want to live as he intended I want to live to his glory I want to live free, I want to live how he wanted me to live, let me ask you, what do you voluntarily enslave yourself to? If you're a Christian here today, what are you doing? He died to set you free. He died to give no power to that thing anymore. Your past cannot control you unless you allow it. You know, sometimes we experience that redemption in our life, don't we? When we're set, set free and the Lord is changing us, he's changing us at a deep level inside and then without realizing it, because we're not being sober-minded, it comes flying in from the side, and we recommit to the things that once enslaved us, we we volunteer again back to them. Today, if you're doing that, renounce it and say, Lord, I want to live as one who's been saved by the precious blood of Jesus. So do you know that Jesus redeems? Perhaps you thought you had to do it yourself, and if you do, can I tell you, you don't. Perhaps you feel trapped in an empty way of life, You've tried everything to get by and get out, but you can't. You need to be redeemed and restored by Jesus. And as that happens, when you hear of this thing, the cross, the place where Jesus died, being spoken of, whereas before it was just an interesting fact of history, suddenly it becomes something that thrills your heart. Christians get excited about the cross. Christians look back to our redemption at the cross and said. I am now free to live for him. I treasure the cross. And it's so precious because he has risen, verse 20 and 21. He has risen over every person. He is God, he is saviour, he is Christ, he is Lord. He is over every nation, people, type, personality, sexuality, socioeconomic background, race, gender. He's over everybody in the world. He rules supreme today, on the 28th of April, 2013, Right now, he is the one who is keeping your heart beating. He is the Lord. He is holy. He is our hope. And he loves us. He loves us. So how are you going to live? Are you going to live for empty things? Or are you going to live to his glory and joy? Are you going to show him off? Peter says, do it because of what he's done for you. Do it in the strength that he provides. Live and stand for him. For it is well with your soul. And you have a future grace yet to be delivered to you. And it's with that in mind that we're going to sing now. This next song is all about how we can have peace through all kinds of traumas, difficulties, personal failures. It's an old song, but it's a powerful song nonetheless. It's a song about how we have peace with God, not through our ingenuity or smarts, not because we deserve it, but because Jesus saves all those who come humbly and say have mercy on my soul. Let's sound and sing together.